At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Guns and ammo, not baseballs and gloves. <laughs> this is Ron Spomer Outdoors Podcast, and we're not going to be covering the old three-fingered baseball glove, but I've sure got it out here to admire. Hi, guys. Ron Spomer. We've got questions and answers, and once again, the team has come up with some. And we thank everyone who commented on our various videos and blogs on ronspomeroutdoors.com. And thank you for these questions. What we're going to do now is see if I can answer them with any degree of accuracy. This person is uh, calling him or herself Lord Loki. And they ask, what kind of tips do you have for someone who has zero tools for reloading? <laughs> oh, yeah, that's a good question. And uh, the obvious tip is to get the tools. <laughs> That's certainly a prerequisite. No, actually, there might be even a better way than to get the tools right off the bat, and that's to get yourself a hand-loading guidebook, a reloading manual. All of the bullet companies will sell these. Uh, Hodgkin Powder Company has one. Vitafuri Powder Company has it. Most of the powder and ammo makers or uh, bullet makers will sell you the book that describes how to do it. It's a recipe book. For every cartridge, they will have recipes, which primer to use, the brass to use, the powder, the dose of the powder, the bullet. It's great information, and it's essential information. But in addition to that, they have in the front usually a pretty exhaustive section on all aspects of doing it. So it's an instruction manual as well as a recipe book. So if you get one of those and read it, it's really going to inform you so that you're not just coming at it blind. You'll have a pretty good idea of what to expect. And if it looks like it's too much for you, you don't want to tackle it, you don't have to waste your money buying all the equipment. <laughs> but when you do buy the equipment, I would recommend getting one of the kits. Most of the manufacturers of the reloading tools sell them as a complete kit. Now, it's not complete, complete. Most hand loaders, when they really get into it, start picking up ancillary tools that make things a little more precise or a little easier. It's like any other hobby. You manage to find things to spend your money on. <laughs> we won't even get into fly fishing here. So, yes, buy the uh, one or two hand loading manuals. And then, if it looks like you want to jump in, check out the kits that will have the reloading press, which is the biggest tool. And it will have powder measure, scale, um, just a few basics. I don't know that many of them put in the uh, supplies like bullets 
and primers and uh, lubricants and those things. You probably have to buy those extra, but the kits will really have everything you need to get started. Uh, you'll probably have to buy the die though. The dies are what squeeze that brass case back to the the size you need to fit into a rifle chamber again. They expand after you shoot, so you've got to size them back down so they will hold a bullet and all the rest of it. So you've got to buy those in addition to this kit because they don't know what you're loading. You know, you buy the press and the, and the scales and all these parts. They don't know if you're loading a 30-30 or a 243 or a 300 Ultramag. So you need to buy the dies for each cartridge that you want to shoot. But this is really a nice thing about hand loading is that once you've got your basic tools, you just buy dies for any cartridge you want to load and you're ready to go. So the way I got started was with my brother and some friends when we were in high school, bought the basic equipment. Then in each one of us bought the dies for, I don't know, back then they were probably 15 bucks or 10 bucks. They're probably more like 30 to 50 now, maybe even some of them up to 70. But my friend had a 25-06. He bought those dies. I bought the 270 dies and the 6-millimeter Remington dies. My brother had a 30-30 die and a 222 Remington dies. And off we went. Just change out your dies and you can load it. So get together with your friends and you can really knock the cost down. Good question. Now, this one is from Rob and he asks, do you really need a bore guide or can you just try and be careful? He is referring to a guide for the rear of the action of your rifle when you're cleaning it. It's called a bore guide because it's a little tube that fits inside of the bore and lines the cleaning rod up perfectly with the center of the rifle's bore. So when you're pushing the rod in, you're not maybe getting a bow in it so that it rubs against the rifling right there at the throat and potentially damages it. How essential is that? Probably not as essential as we like to think. I think we have been cleaning rifle bores for years and years without bore guides, and it didn't seem like it ruined too many of them. But this is another one of those things for sticklers. You like to make sure they're doing everything right. Um, and, you know, they don't cost that much. A few bucks, why not? Uh, and it can help with the mess a little bit. If you get one with an O-ring seal or some kind of a rubber tip on it that fits snugly into the bore, it you avoid any of the fluids and the solvents that you're putting in there coming back into the action. So I recommend them, but it's not absolutely essential. Just be careful when you're cleaning. Use a coated rod if you can. Um, stainless steel rods work fine if you're using bore guides, and they're probably all right if the steel is not as hard as the barrel steel. But what you don't want to do is rapidly slapdash running that rod in and out of that bore and bowing it from too much pressure and rubbing the sides of the rifling, the lands, and such. All right, good question. Now we move on to Brad, and Brad asks, what do you think about people using a 50 BMG for hunting? <laughs> I say they're gluttonous for punishment, <laughs> and they're perhaps a little bit oversupplied. <laughs> There's that old argument, you can't shoot them too dead, and... Uh, Use enough gun, but there's a counter argument. Don't use too much gun because there might not be much left to eat. <laughs> now, I don't know that if you shot something with a 50 caliber bullet as a half inch wide bullet, folks, <laughs> it, you're going to blow it to pieces necessarily because it depends on the type of bullet. 
whether it's going to expand or not, mushroom or not. I could conceivably shoot something with a 50 caliber bullet, put as big a hole in it just with that bullet as a full metal jacketed solid that does not expand at all. That would equal the best expansion you could get from a 30 caliber or maybe even a 35 caliber. I don't know. But really, it isn't necessary. The 50 BMG was designed by John Moses Browning for the military. It's used in big machine guns. It's used in aircraft for shooting down other aircraft. They shoot 700 green bullets, <laughs> 750s. I don't know all the different sizes. It is an absolute monster. And if you want to shoot it without tearing your shoulder from the rest of your body, you probably have to have a 25-pound rifle. I've shot some. They were 25 to 30-pound rifles. Didn't kick bad at all with all that weight. But, uh, oh, man, just the muzzle blast alone is enough to knock you off the chair. So um, as far as what my <laughs> opinion is about people who use them, I think it's, you know, it's a free country. Uh, I'm not going to yell at somebody because he prefers a 223 for shooting deer. Oh, so I'm probably not going to yell at somebody who prefers to use a 50 BMG. They're both tools that will take your game um, and do it efficiently. And so long as you hunt honorably and respect your game and the resource and use it properly, I don't think I'm here to tell you whether or not you should shoot a 50 BMG. Personally, I do think it's kind of silly because it's so big and it really doesn't do anything that you can't do with much more convenient rifles and lighter cartridges. <laughs> and the cost for each cartridge probably is worth more than the meat you're going to get off the game you shoot with it. Oh, man. Now, if I do remember correctly, years ago when this first started, people started using 50 BMGs in sporting weight rifles, if you can call a 20-pound rifle, 25-pound rifle, a sporting weight. There were guys who were, let's just be honest, lazy, and they thought it would be cool to sit on the side of the Forest Service roads up in the wilderness in, in Idaho, or the edge of the wilderness, in glass distant country for elk. And when they would come out at ridiculous distances, they would shoot at them, but wouldn't necessarily recover them. Because A, they couldn't guarantee back in those days that they were going to drop that bullet right on the target. So they might wound one. And the other one was even if they smacked him dead on the spot, they had a heck of a time getting to it. In many cases, there was an intervening valley between them and the target, what, thousand feet deep and they had to go down and back up the other side and by the time they got there they didn't remember where that elk was it all looked different from that perspective so fishing game uh in idaho outlawed the 50 bmg back in those days i don't know if that still applies probably does but of course these days you've got extreme range shooters shooting 416 barrett's and 375s and it's all kinds of big wildcats and different military rounds for extreme range so i think I think the opinion that you probably want is, what do I think of this extreme range shooting? And I am not in favor of it for big game hunting. I am for target shooting. I think it's great training to become a good and effective rifleman. It teaches you a lot about ballistics and physics. Um, and it's a lot of fun. But boy, when it comes time to drop one on an animal and Trust me, I'm not perfect on this one. I'm not without blame because I've tried a couple of long shots and I took a deer one time at 777 yards and I took a lot of static for doing it and admitting it. But I felt like it was worth it 
the effort for me to try that after I really worked at it and studied and practiced and everything else, just to see how realistic it was and what it was really like. And it was about like I figured it would be. I felt as if I'd shortchanged myself on the hunt because I really didn't hunt that hard to get close to that deer. I missed out on the stalking, even though I stalked it for 400 yards. By the time I covered 400, it had two, and it was out in the wide open prairie and such. But at any rate, the bottom line for me on those long shots is the flight time of the bullet. A bullet takes about a second, maybe a little more, depending on the bullet and everything else and its velocity. But to go a thousand yards, well, that's plenty of time for that animal to move enough to make a perfect shot and imperfect shot. And then it's also difficult to call the wind at those distances. It's one thing on a range with wind flags, relatively controlled environment, when you've got time to see the mirage and everything, but you're out hunting, you're in a field position, you're not on sandbags, you're not on a bench, you're not all that steady. The wind is different. The terrain is different. You've got canyons between you and the target. You've got trees blocking the wind in some places and not in others. It's just so unpredictable that I don't recommend anyone take extreme shots. Now, what's an extreme shot for you may not be an extreme shot for the next guy or the next gal or me. It just really varies. We each have to assume the responsibility for knowing our capabilities. And if you cannot guarantee your shot on target at any distance, whatever distance that is, is your maximum range. So if you can only guarantee you're always going to hit a 10-inch or an 8-inch circle at 100 yards, but not beyond, you should be limited to a 100-yard shot. If you can do it at 300 every time, there's your distance. A thousand yard, I don't know anybody who can guarantee first round hits at a thousand yards. I don't really know that I know of anyone who can do it at 600. I once had a professional long range shooting coach shooting at a target that I wanted to film. So I was with the camera behind a berm aimed at his target. And if I recall, it took him three tries to hit it. And he was the coach <laughs> and it was on his range with his rifle and he knew what was going on. So eh, this stuff is not all that easy. All right. Great question. I got a little bit off of the topic there, but I think it was worth addressing. Now, Aaron asks, will the 277 Fury be the end of the 6.8 Western? Ah, that's a good one. So a little explanation for folks who are not necessarily up on these new cartridges. These are two new rounds. The 6.8 Western is Winchester's latest cartridge. It is essentially the 270 WSM short fat one that's had the shoulder pushed back a little bit. So it's optimized for throwing really long bullets, high BC bullets. That's all the rage now, and that's what all the new cartridges are doing. And it does a pretty darn good job of it. It'll go a little bit slower than the 270 WSM would because, of course, it's had its powder capacity reduced by sh pushing that shoulder back. But that lets it have a longer uh, bullet seated on it and still fit in the magazine and into the chambers, et cetera, et cetera, with a long throat. But the most important part of it was they are rifling the barrels for those 6.8 Western rifles at one point or one to seven and a half inches or eight inches of that's your length. So in one and seven and a half or one and eight inch of travel, you're greeting a complete twist. That's the twist rate. It'll stabilize. 
upwards of a 175-grain Sierra-tipped Game King bullet with a pretty high BC. I think the BC is around 625 or something like that. And then there's a Acubon long range from Nosler. It's a 165-grain bullet, and I'm pretty sure that's right at 0.62. So good high BC bullets from a 270. That's what's been lacking in the 270 all these years. And a lot of people have been asking for it. Why don't they put these longer high BC bullets on the 270 Winchester? Well, because most 270 Winchesters have a 1 in 10 inch twist barrel that won't stabilize those heavier bullets or those longer bullets because it's the length that determines that. Now, the competition coming on is the 277 Sig Fury. And that is really revolutionarily different because it uses chamber pressure of 80,000 PSI. And the 6.8 Western, I would guess, is at around 64 to 65,000 PSI. That's always been the peak for the highest pressure cartridges that we shoot. Think 270 Winchester, 300 Winchester Magnum, 22-250 Remington. There are quite a few of them up around that 65,000 PSI, but whoa, 80,000? That's huge. Well, that's a lot more pressure. How did SIG get that in their 270, which they're calling the 277? They got it by designing a steel-based cartridge. The brass is now a combination of brass and steel. I wonder if we should call it stas or, or Briel. <laughs> but the case has a steel head on it, and then the body is brass. Now, why didn't they just make it all steel to withstand that pressure? Well, because the steel probably wouldn't expand to fill the chamber and prevent the gases from coming back. That's what brass is good at. It's pretty elastic. So when you go bang, the steel head is strong enough to withstand that extra pressure so it's not coming back at the face of the bolt and you and doesn't explode inside of the chamber or anything out the back. But the brass up front expands to seal the chamber so all that pressure goes behind the bullet and drives it out remarkably fast. <laughs> so what they're doing is this little 277 is pretty much a 308 Winchester neck down. They may have changed the shoulder angle a little bit, but that gives you an idea of the powder capacity. Not all that much powder, yet it's going as fast as a regular 270, throwing the same weight bullets, but in a 16-inch barrel, I believe. So yeah, they've cranked things up by using higher pressure. So the idea for the military, of course, is you've got a smaller package and a higher impact velocity with a heavier bullet than you're getting with the 5.56 NATO right now. And it's going to outperform the 308 Winchester easily just because of the extra velocity and the higher BC bullets and all the rest of those benefits. Will that make a difference in what cartridges we buy down the road? You know, it might eventually. It's really hard to tell what's going to happen with this because it is so wildly different. For one thing, do we know our standard rifles will be able to withstand that pressure? I mean, can you just take a, a Winchester Model 70 or a Christensen Arms Rifle or uh, an old Remington 700 or just any of them out there, even a Savage or the Ruger or the Weatherbees, will they withstand that pressure if you suddenly put the 277 Fury in there or any offshoots thereof? Um, yeah, the, the second question is, can you hand load it? And that makes a big difference in sales too. So yeah, I don't know. It'd be interesting to follow. That's the best I can tell you is that it's going to be an interesting next 10 years. We might see a whole family of these steel 
headed cartridges with high pressures, then again, we might not see too many of them. I don't know. Good question. Now, this is from Wayne, and he asked, Ron, what is your take on tally rings and bases? Boy, this one is easy because I love them. I have been using tallies for, gosh, I don't know, 30-some years now. And I first caught on when I bought a, an ultralight rifle from Mel Forbes, and he had the tally one-piece ring bases on there. That means the base and the ring are all carved out of one piece of aluminum, and you just screw the bases on the top of your rifle, and you don't have to then mount the rings to the bases. And they only weigh an ounce and a half each. So I'm all set up on a rifle with three ounces of rings. That's all the weight that the ring is adding. That really helps with an ultralight rifle. So that's where I fell in love with them. But Tally also makes a bunch of other styles. You can get quick releases and you name it, they've got it kind of a thing. But the thing that's, I think, the most important thing to consider with tally rings is just the quality of the ring they make. They make them precise. And I have just never had any trouble with any tally rings, so you can trust them. I'm sure there are plenty of other rings out there that are equally well-made and uh, effective, but boy, those are uh, that's a brand that I just really love, and I use it a lot on my rifles. Garrison. Garrison wants to know, do they still make the Dakota Model 10? Oh. Do they still make it? Not quite, but maybe this could get interesting. This is what happened. Back in the 70s, Don Allen, a pilot, I think for United, maybe Delta, but at any rate, a commercial pilot, loved guns and shooting, and I think he really loved traditional firearms, and he wasn't seeing the kind of quality he thought you could get. So he and some other gun guys got together and designed uh, this rifle called the Model 76. He started a company called it Dakota. Dakota Model 76, bolt action, Mauser style rifle, external claw extractor and all the usual stuff. Three position safety, beautiful walnut, just beautiful lines. The whole thing was outstanding. Well, the next one up, I think, was the Model 10. They liked the Farkharzen falling block action. Very sleek. Let's perfect it. So they designed the Model 10 falling block single shot rifle that is the epitome of a falling block single shot rifle no external screw heads on the sides of the action you look at that thing you roll it around and you go how did they put this together there are no screws and it is so sleek and so beautiful and then all the rest of the form the stock lines and the barrel length and everything is balanced so beautifully on that rifle if you have any sense of the aesthetics in firearms, you cannot look away from a Model 10. It is absolutely gorgeous. And that's even without any engraving on it. Just the stock lines and everything else. You put a beautiful chunk of walnut on there with a lot of figure in it, it is a rifle to die for. And does it ever carry beautifully and shoot beautifully? So that's the Dakota Model 10. Unfortunately, it's the kind of high-end pricey rifle that's not going to sell a thousand copies at the local mart. <laughs> it's kind of a special deal for folks who've got a little extra spending money and they really want something special. But it was hanging right in there and was a the kind of a dream rifle for folks. But Dakota always had issues. 
troubles with marketing or sales or something. It was never the guns. They were always beautifully built. But different people would buy the company and try to manage it a certain way. And you know how that goes. You get some bean counter with a degree in economics or something and marketing doesn't quite apply. And I don't know. It works great when you've got a mom and pop operation the way Don Allen and his wife Norma started the company. When they put their heart and soul into it and they know guns and they know hunting, it just works. But once you start to get these management types in there and the CEO types are thinking more about turning over another dollar, it just seems to fall apart for some reason. I don't know the whole story on it, guys. But the interesting thing was we thought they were saved several years ago when the parent company that owned Remington picked it up. They bought it. Suddenly, there's a bunch of money to put into it. Unfortunately, Remington got mismanaged over and over again with new CEOs, and the whole thing went belly up. So Remington went out, and with it went Marlin they had picked up at one time, and several other Panther Arms, I think, and Dakota was one of them. So they they just were all gone because they had a bankruptcy, closeout sale, and they sold out the parts, and nobody bought Dakota. They uh, Federal bought the uh, Remington Ammunition line. They're building that again. Um, Sierra got the Barnes Bullet end of it, the Barnes Ammunition. So that's still out there. And then Remington Arms is being manufactured again. Who's doing that? Gosh, I forget, guys. Sorry. But at any rate, Dakota didn't get bought by anybody. Oh, crushed me, man. So you can't get a Model 10. But here's the, uh, the bright light on the horizon. Some investors have bought the, I don't know if they had to buy the the copyright or the the patent on the action or what, um, but they found enough of the people who used to work at Dakota and build those rifles, and they're building them again, but they're not Dakota. That's gone. But the basic rifle is there, and they're going to start building Model 10s again. And if I remember right, it's called Park West Arms. In fact, yes, that is it, because I checked it on, found a site. They've got a website, so you want to check it out, Park West Arms and see if they're offering the Model 10 yet. But I have heard that they will be building this one. And I'm going to talk to some of those folks, try to get them on a podcast as fairly soon here. Um, I know some of the guys from the old Dakota days, and I touch base, and we're going to get together and talk about this Park West Arms and the Model 10. So hang in there. You might be able to get one. Great question. Here's one from Ellis. And Ellis asks, what is your opinion? of a modern bolt-action rifle chambered in a 303 British for hunting in the lower 48. I know that in the past they have taken out just about every animal on the planet. Would a modern version work, or would it be considered obsolete by today's standards? Boy, oh boy, Ellis, not obsolete at all. The 303 British was the British military round, gosh, until the, the mid-1890s. I know it was used in the Boer Wars over in South Africa. I kind of where it got started. It was in the Enfield rifles. It was in World War One, and I think they still used it in World War Two. I don't think they phased it out until the 1950s or something. So a lot of soldiers had it. It came back like most military arms did in those days, and it was used in the hunting fields. It was sporterized. It was real popular in Canada and probably still is. So it was used to take caribou, elk, moose, sheep, you name it. If it's in Canada, some hunter used a 303 British to take it. It's a little bit wider bullet than a uh, 308, 
it's a 311 if I remember. Uh, so it's not a real common bullet diameter, but the case capacity is a little less than uh, 30-06, I think, more like a 308 Winchester. So consider it to be pretty much capable of doing anything the 308 Winchester could do. And plenty of manufacturers still offer ammunition for it, so don't worry about it. It is viable. It's still out there, and a modern version would work just well. So thanks for asking, and good luck with your 303 British rifle, whatever it ends up being. Hey, that's about it for this episode. Again, want to thank you folks for watching and listening. And if you can, subscribe to this YouTube channel and catch us on your favorite podcatchers. And you can also catch us on Ron Spomer Outdoors um, YouTube channel where we cover ballistics and cartridges and fun stuff like that. And there's Ron Spomer Outdoors website, ronspomeroutdoors.com. We've got a lot of blogs on there, including some guest blogs and even some fishing stuff these days. Uh, we invite you to join that where you can get on rsotv.com where we cover hunting and hand loading and rifles in depth. Great to have you. Thanks for the support. Thanks for all the questions. Keep them coming. If you guys are enjoying these episodes, we'll just keep doing them for you. In the meantime, hunt honest and shoot straight. Anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, I'm ill there, baby, right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.